Hello, welcome, and would you look at this mess? I'm your host, Kate, and the purpose of this podcast is to trace, explore, and celebrate the unconventionality that lives within all of us. Hey, hi, welcome back. Come on in. Before I get going on this episode, I wanted to let you know that the podcast is now on a new platform called Audia. I've mentioned it a little bit in previous episodes, um, but it is officially ready to go. So the platform is called Audia. It's an amalgamation of the words audio and idea. Um, And so it's spelled A-U-D-E-A. And uh, currently it's only available on like a web browser, but I believe at some point it will be an app as well. Um, And I have a code for you. I'm going to put it in the notes because it's one of those multi-letter number things. And so I feel like saying it out loud is just going to confuse me and possibly you. (laughs) So, um, So it's in the show notes. But you can go to audia dot uh, slash io sorry dot io who slash register, and you can get yourself on the platform, and you can see my podcast stuff. You can see other people's podcasts or other spoken word content, or not see. You can hear it, um, and it's kind of like YouTube in that it has an algorithm that will push content to you based on your selected interests and topics, and you can search things. So it's quite nice because it functions a little more. Um, you know, it's preference-based versus just whatever is most popular on Apple Podcasts. So anyway, that's my spiel for you. And like I said, you can find all of the details for that in the show notes. They'll be there for you, so you can check that out. Um, And yeah, it's invite-only, so that's why you have to have a code to register and all that. So anyway, let's move on. I really want to start by identifying that this episode is going to center whiteness, white feelings, white experience. It's going to discuss uh, the deconstruction of racelessness as a white person and my experience with that and trying to reconstruct myself as a racial person being white, all of that. So I just want to be clear about that before I dive in because I know that at times it can be difficult for people who come from other racialized, marginalized groups to listen to white people discuss this. Um, So I want you to be very aware that this is what we're signing up for in this episode and that if this does not sound like something that you are able to receive and take on at this moment, that is totally fine. I invite you to skip this episode and move on to the next one. Um, And this is going to be geared towards a white audience. It's going to be prescriptive for a white audience. So it's not to say that you can't listen to it or that you're not welcome to listen to it, but just that I'm trying to be mindful and respectful of the fact that sometimes these are are difficult things for others to listen to. So I just, yeah, I want to be really, really clear on that. Um, So... The impetus for me recording this episode, um, I mean, I've thought about this stuff for a long time. Um, I actually currently, part of my job is to do research on anti-racism and anti-oppression and things of that nature. So I'm constantly kind of reading and doing more learning and attending webinars and all kinds of stuff like that um, in order to build up my capacity 
And like I said, uh, a lot of this process, uh, as I've learned now, is what is happening is quite literally deconstructing the racelessness that I was brought up with. Um, this this is kind of related to color blindness, and essentially the fact that white supremacy is the the norm. This is what we are taught. Whether you know it doesn't have to be explicit; it can be implicit, and often it is implicit throughout our whole lives. We learn that white people are superior, and whiteness is an unchallenged, unconscious reality, where. Um, for people who come from racialized backgrounds, their race is kind of a constant um, identifier and something that they're constantly aware of. So anyway, um, I've been doing lots and lots of re-education and stuff. And um, so, okay, so the, the specific impetus for recording this episode is the recent, quote, discovery of an Indigenous uh, child burial site at the Kamloops Residential School. Um, and I put the word discovery in quotations because, to be honest, I would have been happier to have seen this framed as a confirmation of what the local Indigenous communities have been saying for decades, that there are ch- the bodies of children buried there. And the government and the population, the dominant population at large, has has completely ignored or denied that reality. The church has denied it. And so now we finally have some... Um, We've, we've had some technological advancements applied to this claim, and it has been confirmed that there is a burial there. I've gone on some discussion a little bit on Instagram about the problematic nature of the way that the, re- the report is being shared in the media in that ground penetrating radar or GPR is an imprecise technology. Um, it's difficult to understand without having without being able to read the report where they're coming up with the very specific and definitive numbers that they have Um, but that's something that will develop over time and I am happy to keep you know kind of coming back to this and reporting on it as I learn more as we all learn more and trying to unpack all of it uh, alongside the investigations Um, this is something that you know I have familiarity with because I do archaeology and this is exactly the kind of stuff that, that we do. A uh, quick side note here, I just want to apologize that it may sound a little choppy in this episode. Um, <laughs> Emmeline is waiting for my brother to text me back about something and she keeps barging in to ask me if he's texting me back. So uh, I keep pausing and restarting. Anyway, so uh, there is this, like I said, this quote, discovery has been made. And so it's left the country um, and everybody sort of in it, indigenous and otherwise reeling and very it's been a very emotional week it's been a very uh difficult week for a lot of people and um one of the things that i commented on early on when this happened was that it is interesting to me and i find it to be um to for lack of better word a little fucked up that there are so many white canadians who are just now learning about the 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 general atrocious uh, experience and nature of residential schools in Canada. So, um, you know, I kind of commented on that. And then, so that, I'm going to run through this again. If you've watched my Instagram stories, you, you'll have seen this already perhaps, but um, just to kind of create the context here. Um, so that was on like Sunday. I said, oh, it's kind of fucked up that people are just learning about this now. I mean, it's good that we are. It's good that this is sparking conversation, but it is, you know, 
problematic that this is only happening now. Um, and then on Monday, a woman that I follow on Instagram, who is Mi'kmaq, I believe she lives in Newfoundland. Like I don't know her at all. She's just a, an Indigenous woman who is doing a lot of work um, with the Mi'kmaq and, and with just you know trying to offer decolonization ideologies and strategies and stuff. So I follow her anyway. She posted something on her Instagram that said. Um, we've something on lines of like we've learned that the nuns and priests who were overseeing residential schools have been quote retiring um, in Ontario and Quebec, and they have a, a, a home like a, um, a I'm gonna, again it's a retirement home, but they don't really retire, but they're gone. They're living their out their days in Waterdown, Ontario, and this was a moment where I was like, what? <laughs> What? Like, it was an out-of-body experience to see my hometown named in something where, again, I don't know this person. They're not at all related to my community. Like, they're so far removed from me. Um, it was a weird experience. And because I had no idea that that was what was happening. And so then it sent me sort of spiraling emotionally and everything and I posted it to my Instagram and I said like I don't know if this is true but I feel ill thinking about this and some of my friends confirmed one of my friends who her mother was uh, raised in sort of the Catholic church and, and Catholic schools and stuff you know she said this is true um, to, to be clear though the the place where these people were living is currently owned by an international school it houses international students so the church no longer owns it um, but yes, she said that that is, they used to live there. And then another friend of mine said, um, you know, she worked at the local shoppers drug mart and the nuns would come in to pick up their prescriptions. And so she got curious because these are like 109 year old nuns. Um, and so she asked, had asked them and she also confirmed that that was, that some of them came from the residential schools. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is just one of those one of those humbling moments because here I am you know talking about how how messed up it is that people don't know about residential schools and I'm learning that I've spent a chunk of my life living alongside people who were committing these atrocious acts and they've not received any consequences for this they've experienced they've taken no accountability for this um, and so it was that for me was a very emotional experience. And in particular, now, I mean, I expect that other people also had these sort of visceral reactions to it and, and, and had feelings around it and everything else. But for me personally, from my experience, I mean, a lot of the research that I've done, a lot of my friends, my colleagues are Indigenous folks, and I can't think of a single one who has not been touched by residential schools through their family, either themselves being survivors or their children of survivors. And so I carry a lot of those stories with me, and it's very personal to me that I have friends um, and people who I really deeply care about and love who have been impacted by this. So it was this weird kind of, um, <laughs> this loop closing, right? And so, because sometimes, and this is a human thing, so I'm not, you know, I, I can't, it's kind of messed up that this is what happens, but this is a normal human thing that when things exist in an abstract sense, it's a little easier to remove ourselves from them and to experience a stronger cognitive dissonance towards it. But when it becomes more personalized, when we start seeing these things firsthand, when we start experiencing these things through others that we know, it becomes much more 
personal. And so that was my experience was that I was feeling very ill. I was feeling very emotional and I had a hard time not crying for like two days because I was thinking about how, again, I can, I have faces and names of people who are impacted by this. And I was living alongside people who were, had been doing this all along and I had no idea. It felt like a personal violation. Um, so again, I don't know how other people feel about this or what other people's experiences were, but that was my experience with it. And so I had to do a few days of, of really soul-searching, deep connection with myself to try to reconcile what I had learned, this new information that I have. And again, in this, this ironic position where I'm talking about people who don't, don't know about residential schools, and here was this, this huge piece of information that I never knew. And so I wanted to say, you know, like, this is why it's important not to beat ourselves up about not knowing these things, because it's very well hidden information. It's kept secret or it's secretive for a reason, right? We're not privy to this information. Our education system did not provide any of this information for us because the government has been complicit in all of this. They facilitated a lot of this. So it makes sense. And especially because when you think about residential schools having closed within my lifetime, I mean, I think I was like eight or 10 by the time the last schools closed. Um, it's not, so there's a whole other issue here of how the government frames it as being part of our history, quote unquote, because it is not part of history, at least not in the sense of being removed enough, right? So, because again, I'm living alongside people who were a part of this. So that's not history in my, by my definition. Um, but when it's, it is so recent, uh, it is difficult for governments to come around to owning these things and doing the right thing about it. Um, because, you know, it, it, it was always something that was done more or less in secret or was framed in a way that it was for the best for these people to take them to these schools, to assimilate them and, and, and literally break their spirits so that you could eradicate their culture. And that was what... Um, we what, what people were told was the right thing to do. We needed them to be like us. We needed them to integrate into our society and no longer be indigenous and hang on to their culture. So that also has all these implications for um, indigenous folks trying to reclaim their culture now because they're, they're, it's so layered with this trauma all of the intergenerational trauma and then it and then there's just these continuations of trauma that that continue to happen but anyway this is not an episode dedicated to talking about that stuff maybe at some point i will but anyway that's the kind of stuff that's been going on recently that made me start to really think about what we need to be doing we need to be taking action and i got thinking about you know how this how this um, sort of intersects with uh, Black Canadians and Asian Canadians and Asian Americans and all, all kinds of different racialized groups, um, and then us being white people. And, you know, so I've been doing this, quote unquote, the work, capital T, capital W, the work of deconstructing my racelessness for a long time, because I started it being exposed to these kinds of realities when I first entered college and university in my early 20s. And that was like the initial awakening. And so I've just been seeking out more and more information and more understanding and knowledge and 
and continuing this tearing down of the racelessness for many, many years. And again, so, you know, sometimes I have these humbling moments where I'm like, I'm still learning, I'm still finding things out. And it's still, it still impacts me, even though I've largely been able to work through a lot of it and get to the other side of action rather than just apathy and feeling guilty and feeling shamed and shameful. And that's what I want to focus on, because I think there is this this point we're at where a lot of white people are being, for lack of a better word, blindsided by their whiteness and by the harm that whiteness causes and the normalization of whiteness and the unchallenged normalization of whiteness. And so, you know, again, through all of this reading and everything I'm doing, I've really come to this moment of clarity somewhat recently about the fact that, um, like, a uh, Black kids and Indigenous kids and Asian and Hispanic kids and kids who come from all different racialized backgrounds are being uh, exposed to narratives about their race and about racism and the experiences they're experiencing those things, racism and discrimination from very young ages, from the time that they can consciously view the world. So... They're being brought up in a way that is conscious and aware of their race, and in part because it's a survival mechanism. They need to be aware of their race because they need to know how to function and exist and operate in a world that seeks to discriminate against them, that seeks to minimize them, and in a lot of ways seeks to exterminate them. And white kids... (laughs) Are, and so this is something that was brought up in a book that I've been reading. Um, the book, hang on a second. The book is called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum. And she is a social psychologist. And one of the things that she mentions is that white kids, white folks, can live their entire lives without ever being conscious of their race. Um, but it does often happen that when people, when white white kids end up going to college and university, that's when there is this moment, a turning point for them where they are exposed to other, other uh, ways of thinking about race and recognizing that they have a race. And because a lot of this narrative is imbued with the the harmfulness of the white race and the harm that's caused by, again, this white and normalization of whiteness, it's met with um, bigger emotions that are, you know, like guilt and shame and confusion. And, and again, this uh, Dr. Tatum talks about how uh, black folks, particularly her book focuses on black kids um, and white kids specifically. She does uh, later on in the book go into different, uh, different racial groups as well, but I haven't got there yet. Um, anyway, it's, it's a huge book. I mean, I think I'm like 500 pages into it and I'm maybe halfway through it. (laughs) So that's why I'm like, it takes a long time for me to read this one. Um, anyway, but in terms of the blackness versus whiteness, uh, she discusses how, um, black folks are consistently trying to, um, 
be be in the world, exist in the world as not a part of their racial group. They're always sort of lumped together. And so that's why, like, you know, these stereotypes are so harmful because it doesn't see people as individuals from different racial groups. It sees them as being a member of their group. And we have these these heuristics that we lean on that are based in stereotypes that are often inaccurate or at the very least um, they're uh, misrepresenting why things happen the way that they do. So they're constantly striving to be viewed as individuals, whereas white folks are always seen as individuals. We are always given the benefit of being an individual. And so when we suddenly are all lumped together as being a racial group and that racial group causes harm to others, there's this backlash of like, but I'm an individual. I'm not a bad person. I didn't do anything wrong. And so it's not necessarily about, um, you know, that people as individuals are harmful. It's that the systems, it's that the the uh, group as a whole causes harm. And so that can be a difficult sort of um, mind sh- mind- mindset shift to make. It can be difficult to start to frame things in that way because, again, we're so used to being individualized. We're so used to being accepted and viewed as the individual why would you group me into this whole group of people, right? And not that's not to say that there aren't harmful white people who do directly and specifically cause harm towards other uh, racial groups. You know, like when you have KKK members and white nationalists and those things, like those people exist, but they are the, the, the minority. The vast majority of white people don't intentionally cause harm through uh, the perpetuation of racist uh, systems and institutions and policies and stuff like that. So... That's what these these couple of books that I've been reading focus and center on is the fact that we're trying to essentially draw white people to understand that they are causing harm in their day-to-day practices and the things that they support, but they're unaware of it. And it doesn't mean that they're bad people. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person or that you intend to cause harm. But there's this very poignant phrase that comes up a lot where we talk about impact over intent. So it's not necessarily about what you intended to do or what your intentions were. It matters more that the impact of your actions, the impact of what you've done is harmful. And um, so what I want to do is kind of discuss, you know, that, sorry, there's someone is mowing their lawn now. Actually, it might even be Nick and a friend lawn. Um, anyway, background noise. So what I want to say, okay, there, there... There's this narrative now where um, people, especially on social media, people are saying white folks need to sit down and listen. We need to listen. We need to learn. We need to unlearn all that stuff. Right. And so when when things come up about race and racism and racial injustice, again, especially on social media, um, it can be very troubling and it can be very uh, difficult for white people to see these things and to grapple with it because we don't have, we're so ill-equipped to confront it because we're so race lacking racial consciousness. And so again, it feels like it's sort of a blind side. And then you know, the, our instinct is to want to talk about how we feel about this. We want to be like, but I have feelings on this. I, you know, this is troubling for me. I, again, I didn't do anything wrong. It's all about I, I, I. Um, we're not equipped to, to sort of 
process that and move through it quickly enough that we can come back to focusing on the other person, the impact on the other person. Um, and so this is where that, that disconnect between like kids who come from different racialized backgrounds, they're brought up with, a, with a, an extreme level of racial consciousness and white folks are brought up with a complete lack of racial consciousness. And then that, that leaves this huge gap. And one of the things that I've noticed that I feel like is happening is that when we're in these spaces and these times and places and with the people who I would say is categorically inappropriate to be speaking on our feelings about something, when the conversation is about race and racism and us being the, you know, ill-practiced, ill-equipped white people who are like, what? This is shocking. I didn't know. Or it's not me. I don't do this. Um, you know, <laughs> we get this message that we're not allowed to talk about our feelings, that we're not allowed, we're not permitted to center ourselves at any point in time. And I think that there is this mass confusion that white people aren't allowed to express their feelings, to have our feelings validated, to uh, talk about to, um, to to sort of bring up what comes up for us when these conversations come up in the real world, in real life. And because in the moment when when someone says it's not the time, this this is not the time for you to express your feelings on this, the message that gets sent or, or received is you're not allowed to talk about this. You're only allowed your your job is to make space for other people to express their feelings. Your job is to center uh, only ever center the black person in this equation or the indigenous person in this equation. And I think what we need to come around to is that that's not the reality. We can't do that in perpetuity. We cannot only ever center and only ever be empathizing with the other side. We do actually have to talk about this stuff amongst ourselves. So then there is this uh, when, where, and with whom <laughs> parameter of Yes, you do need to visit your feelings. You do need to pay attention and confront those things. But it's it's a time and place manner <laughs> restriction kind of idea. I really hope that I'm being clear here, um, because you, because yeah, like what happens is a lot of people you know, we're confronted by this stuff. It shows up in our social media feeds, or it comes up in our life. Someone points it out to us, and it can take us back. It can take us aback. And we're like, oh, I never thought about this. And so internally, we might start having a dialogue. But again, we're told in that moment, this is not the time for you to be talking about how you feel about this. This is not the time or the space for you. You need to make space for others. And again, like, I think that that is totally true. I think that is accurate. I think that that is completely appropriate. But there's this missing link of like, later on, you should be visiting those feelings. You should be doing something to confront them and process them. Work through that stuff amongst yourself, amongst your your racially uh, equivalent peers, because that is where we start to move through these feelings of shame and guilt, and we it, it will help prevent us from getting to this end point of apathy. Apathy being we feel so confused and ashamed that we just can't do anything about it, that we are completely inactive. And it starts a cycle then of feeling resentment, of feeling like 
you know, we're the ones being discriminated against. We start to victim blame. There's this whole other cycle of things that happens when we get stunted in the feelings of guilt and shame and confusion. I think, yeah, that those are the primary things that come up for a lot of us is, is we feel personally attacked. We feel like, again, we're not bad people, so we can't make sense of a lot of it. And when we get the message that we're not allowed to ever confront these things within ourselves, we're not ever allowed to talk about it, then we can spiral into or, or we can get stuck in those feelings. And then it starts that negative spiral effect, that negative um, sort of inaction, apathy, victim blaming, making things worse. And so I actually, so again, I, re- I was reading this book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And there's a whole chapter that she devotes to um, discussing what white people can do to sort of move through this. And there's actually like within social psychology, there is a framework for what's happening. And I'm going to share it with you, actually, because this is it's it's interesting. And I think that it lends some further legitimization to this idea that we need to talk about this stuff. This is what... um, Dr. Tatum shares, and it's actually a model that was uh, produced by a different researcher by the last name of of Helms. So what Helms says is that there is a process um, of, so sorry, it says these, the the tasks are represented by what Helms calls six statuses or states of mind. So there is contact, disintegration, reintegration, pseudo-independent, immersion slash immersion, and autonomy. So there's a, a legitimate model for white folks processing uh, going from a raceless identity to being uh, considered part of a racialized community. Um, and so there's, you know, the author does go into sort of explaining what all of these different elements are and how they function and all of that. Um, but in my mind, it, it essentially comes down to you have to tear down the racelessness. You have to deconstruct that and then reconstruct yourself. And so the important thing is when people get stuck between the phases of deconstruction and reconstruction because whiteness becomes associated with this negative thing, with this harmful thing. And so white folks have to find ways in order to re-identify as white in a positive way, not a white nationalist way, but have a positive sense of self-identity in order to move past those feelings of fear, uh, anger, and um, confusion and all of that stuff. So that's what's really important. I think that's the crux of everything that is kind of getting missed in the the mainstream narrative about facing and confronting racism right now. Because there is a sense of urgency that white people need to understand this stuff because it's through that understanding and through that process of re-identifying and, and becoming racially conscious that we end up being able to become active in dismantling racism systemically that's where that's that lies so the the this uh, author and i think this is this is you know <laughs> okay so she suggests that white folks you know we read up from other white folks who have been doing this work for longer who can help guide us in our processing and in our journey uh she suggests 
uh, formulating or joining support groups, um, specifically made up of just white people, because that's where we can be the most honest and open. That's where we can invite open dialogue and discussion, ask questions. We can present compassionate correction. All of those things can happen, which can help really help people process what it is that's going on and help to get us to the next stage where we start to take action, meaningful action, and become effective allies. And the other thing that I really focus on, and so, well, it's okay, so the other thing is is actually raising children to be perceptive and aware of their whiteness. And so this is a whole thing for me because um, I, ha- I actually just started reading this other book called Raising White Kids. Uh, let me find the author for you here. Hang on a sec. I just have the book on my Kobo. I'm just, oh, shoot. <laughs> Uh, I did not think it was going to take me so long to get this um, title for you. So the the title is Raising White Kids. The authors are Jennifer Harvey and Tim Wise. And um, so... So as Jennifer Harvey, I take it, I don't know what what kind of teacher, but she's a teacher. So she kind of comes from a background of teaching kids uh, in a classroom about race and racism and kind of confronting it there. But then she also became a parent. And so she uh, started to realize that there were some different strategies that she needed to employ in order to uh, raise her children in a racially conscious way. And so, again, I'm just sort of getting into this book. But the other thing for me is that uh, I've mentioned before that I'm on TikTok now, and that is a whole wild, weird experience in itself for me uh, because I started... I made a couple of videos just offhandedly kind of confronting, talking about racism within medical care and some other things. And then it kind of... People really started to take to it. So, you know, I started answering questions that people had or responding to commentary and stuff on on those videos. And then at one point... I had this sort of moment where I was like, you know, one thing that we really need to do, again, this is before I started reading that the other book, the thing we really need to do is start raising our kids to be really aware of their consciousness. And we need to be having open, honest dialogue about how we're doing this. Because, you know, I made this one video on TikTok that's uh, not quite viral, but it's pretty close and it's gotten a huge response. And basically what I've said in this video is that uh, we as white families need to be open and honest about what it is that we're t- teaching our children in the home because uh, we need to be open to the correction and open to the idea that we might be doing some things wrong or we could be there could be room for improvement, um, but also because we really need to normalize this idea that kids can be brought up from a young age conscious of their their race. It's not political. It's critical. Talking about race and racism is critical to moving through, moving past uh, these cycles of anger, fear, um, confusion, apathy, victim blaming, all that stuff. We need to make our kids racially aware. So yeah, so I started making these videos on TikTok that were reenactments of me talking to my kids about race in the home. And so I made this like into a series now. And the last one that I posted on TikTok was literally about crayons. And it has become the most popular video I've posted on TikTok by a long shot. And um, and again, it's gotten quite a response. And so interestingly, it's the first one that I've that I've posted where I got a huge response from white people saying that it was a pointless thing, that they're like, I don't understand why you're doing this. It's just a fucking crayon, etc. And so I posted and, and then again another response video saying, like, it's not just a crayon. We 
have to be able to think about these things in a the broader macro view of like if you make your child aware that crayons have can be different skin colors, you can have different skin colors represented in crayons. It's not just the peach one is the skin color. That's normalizing whiteness. If you create an, a dialogue or a narrative, an environment where your kid is able to see, oh, hey, this brown crayon could be a, could be a skin color. This black crayon could be a skin color. This more yellow one can be a... Like, any any of those tones can be skin colors, then you're creating a, a way for your child to see other ways that race is involved in the world that make them conscious of their race. And so that's kind of what I was aiming to do. And, and then the, the follow-up video has gotten quite a positive response. People, But people are less likely to see that one than the initial one. The initial one was sort of the sensationalized one. So I doubt that the people who really needed that message are the ones who have seen it. But anyway, um, yeah, so this is a whole thing for me where I'm like, you know, trying to have these open conversations and be open about what it is that I'm doing in my home to help my kids be aware of their race because I am committed and I really want my kids to grow up in a way where they're not going to be completely blindsided by things as they come up. Um, they might learn things here because this is the this is one thing that I have to be conscious of and again, uh, rooting myself in humility that I'm only ever aware myself of things that often other people bring up, right? Things don't occur to me necessarily on my own. Like I'm still building up my my own racial consciousness. And so there are some things in the world that I notice and I'm like, oh yeah, that's racist or like, or, you know, I can pick out things, but there are lots of things that I don't. Um, but again, I've gotten to this place where I can be led by um, sort of this consciousness and this level of humility where if something does come up, I can integrate it into my ever expanding consciousness, and then just go forward from there um, versus being in a place where I'm not really conscious of it at all. I'm not able to confront it and I'm trying to avoid it still. And I'm, I'm feeling fearful about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. And then I feel bad. And, and again, like I'm just spiraling in these negative emotions and just getting stuck within them. Um, so the point I was making there is that like my kids will grow up and they probably will still continue to learn more things about race and racism, but the, the idea, and this is the hope again, I can't ever guarantee things will go the way I plan, but the hope is that they'll be able to just continuously integrate those things into their, 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 um, existing consciousness and it won't be such a laborious process for them. Um, and so this is where like this, I feel I felt like I needed to talk about this stuff because there is this sense that again that like white people need to like sit down and learn and listen and yada yada and again I don't think that there's I don't think that that's wrong but there does need to be this other side of compassion for the fact that that white supremacy also harms us in the way that we're not conscious of this stuff often until it's we're much much older and then we're trying to uh, fill in those gaps at a rapid pace. And this is not a an emotionally neutral process. It's highly imbued with emotion. So this is, again, where I'm like, we really need to be able to um, process these things and take the space that we need to work through it so that we can continue to move forward and not get stuck in some negative spiral of emotions. So the other thing I was thinking about, you know, is like just basically the point is, you may not be able to create a support group. And so actually I suggested this to somebody. I, I, you know, I was, I was like, okay, I think 
we need to create a support group for people because people need to talk about this stuff. They need to know they have a dedicated space that is a safe space that they can talk about this stuff and work through it versus just trying to like tippy toe around it and try to find out who you can and can't talk to about this stuff, who's going to be incited and, and, uh, and have strong emotions about it. Having a space where you know you can enter that space and be honest and be um, able to sit in the uncomfortableness of confronting this stuff. And the person responded and they were like, yeah, you know, logically, I understand that there's like a need for this, but I can't wrap my head around um, doing this and taking away from the what we need to stuff we need to do for the oppressed. And I was like, yeah, you know, I understand that. And I completely agree that I'm conflicted on this. But then I thought, like, actually, if ideally, if you do this correctly, you're not taking away from the oppressed. You're actually helping to, um, it's a harm reduction strategy. You're helping white people to confront their stuff, you know, deal with our shit separately so that we can come to the table with more empathy. We can continue to fill our cups and then be there for others when they need their cup filled, when they're asking for our attention on their issues. And we don't center ourselves in places where it is inappropriate to do so. So that's my feeling on that. Um, but what I would suggest is, is to find, you know, a, have a buddy system, have a buddy or a couple of buddies who you know you can turn to when things go go get rough, when new news cycles come up where they're bringing up really emotional and really difficult things and you need to process those things, have a buddy or two that you can have a deep dive conversation with who you know will support you, who you know is sort of on, aligned with you and how much they know and how much they're working towards, you know, re-educating themselves. Journal about this stuff. Get a journal. Write things down. When you're feeling these really strong initial emotions, write it down. Get it out of your system so you can process it more, again, by yourself or with someone else. Get into therapy. I think, you know, it, this may be a tricky one because not every therapist is an anti-racist or anti-racist educator, but the very least, they're capable of handling emotions that are difficult, that are often difficult to identify, though they could probably help you to process some of the stuff, or they could give you a direction to go in that too. Um, and again, work with your kids on this stuff. Start reading literature that centers other races, that centers other realities, other experiences. Um, start doing that kind of work, and that's what will help you kind of work through this stuff too. Okay. I actually have more that I can say about this, <clears throat> and it's likely that I will. I think, you know, I, I, I did mention in an episode a while ago that, that I do talk about race and racism on other platforms and things like that, and so I wanted to discuss it on the pod too, but I didn't really know how to do it or, or, or how to frame it. So this feels like the best possible way that I can bring this up here now. Um, but yeah, I will, I will talk about it more as we go forward. I will continue to do my learning, um, and do my, my reintegration and building my autonomy as a white person who can be an agent of change. Um, I think that's, that's the, the, you know, stage that we all want to be at is, we want to be able to take meaningful actions in our lives, our day-to-day -day lives, and in the broader world to disrupt racism, to identify it, to empathize with others, and be able to be the agents of change that are necessary um, in order to, to go, get to a better place. 
I don't necessarily think that, you know, it is possible to eradicate this stuff. Uh, this is an idea that Derek Bell, um, he sort of theorized part of critical race theory, all that stuff. But at the very least, we can get to a better place. We can get to a place where people, we can, we can engage in harm reduction. So those are my thoughts for now. Um, and so to recap a little bit about what the prescriptive idea here is, is to, um, to start to get comfortable as much as you possibly can with confronting race. Uh, do this on your own time. Do this in your own spaces that are safe where, with people that you trust that you can um, talk about these things with and you can continue to educate yourself and ask questions and uh, learn more about what is going on and, and, and try to place yourself within the larger equation. Um, I wanted to say too that if you don't know of someone in your life that you could do this, please feel free to reach out to me. I, um, I do feel like I'm equipped enough to at least be listening and empathetic to other people who are struggling with this stuff. I get it. Um, it's very challenging. And yeah, so I'm always here for you if you need someone. But yes, please, please do start doing the reading, start um, doing the journaling, the therapy, if you can um, get your buddy, get your buddy system in place, start that work. And, and I promise you it, it will help, um, getting comfortable in, in just being, uh, facing these things, facing these realities because they're not going away and they're only going to come up more and more as time goes on. And so the longer you take to start getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, the more likely you are to end up doing the things that people are going to find inappropriate, the more that you're going to find it difficult to muzzle yourself in spaces where you, you don't understand or you're confused. And so you want to explore that, but that's not the right place anyway. So that's what, uh, what I would do. And then again, as you start to work through this stuff, start, and you don't have to be like, there's no mastery to any of this. So you don't have to be at a certain level of, of anti-racist education or whatever to start talking to your kids about it, to start reading them books about this stuff, to introduce that kind of material, to start trying to think about ways that you might be able to disrupt normalization of whiteness and start to disrupt uh, cycles of racism within your own family. So that needs to be a priority too. Um, but again, it doesn't require a really full in-depth understanding, but I would recommend uh, reading Raising White Kids. Um, I would recommend reading Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria. That also she offers in uh, at least one of her chapters about white identity, several uh, good sources and resources for people to tap into to help them along their journey. So anyway, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I am very grateful that you're here and you know, oh, I should have said this, but I'm always open to the idea that I'm wrong. I am never so attached to my own thoughts and my own ideas that I can't uh, be accepting criticism and accepting other perspectives. So please, if you have a perspective on this and you disagree with me, feel free to reach out and let me know. Um, a lot of this exploration has to do with uh, you know, presenting ideas and then, and then having them shut down. <laughs> so don't think that I'm so attached to things or that I think that I'm right. I don't necessarily, again, this is a lifelong learning, um, 
uh, opportunity and I'm open to, to being wrong or to having my, my vision expanded further. So feel free to do that if you, if you feel the need or you feel compelled to. Um, I'm happy to have conversations about this. So again, so grateful that you're here. I'm so grateful that you have listened to this whole episode and I would love to hear your thoughts at all, anything at all about this. You can send me messages privately through email or DMs. You can comment on the Instagram posts. If this uh, episode has spoken to you, I would love it if you would share the Instagram post that's associated with it. If you would offer uh, a review and give a rating, any of that stuff would be really fantastic. And come find me on, on Idea and find some other creators who are creating content on that platform as well. All right. Thank you so much. I will see you in the next one.